New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In years past, we interviewed poet and environmental activist Gary Snyder. We asked him what was his best advice on practical ways we can improve our personal relationship with nature and the health of our local community. He replied, know your local watershed. For over three decades, our guest today, Kate Marionchild, has been doing just that. She moved to inland Mendocino County in Northern California in 1980 and trained herself as an amateur naturalist, watching wildlife, leading nature walks, and giving slide presentations. Today we'll be exploring the fascinating world of nature and how to get more deeply involved with what lives in our own native landscape with our guest, Kate Marionchild. Kate Marion Child is the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. It is also illustrated by Anne Meyer McGlinte. Join us for the next hour as Kate Marion Child shares the delight that comes from walking slowly or sitting quietly in nature and how we can become a citizen scientist. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Kate, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's so good to have you here and talking about such wonderful subjects like birds and fungi and and plants and lizards and all sorts of things that fascinated us when we were were children but can continue to fascinate us. And I would love for you to share some of your story. How did you first get interested in looking at the flora and fauna animals in your neighborhood? Well, I think the roots of it are in my childhood, like yours it sounds like. I grew up in rural Malibu, and I was a wild child. I spent all my time wandering the hills, often alone, looking and making distinctions, seeing that, oh, this looks like that, but that, that plant's a little different. And so learned, I, I honed my powers of observation then. Then I later moved to Mendocino County in my uh, 30s, and I started a sea vegetable business, and I learned the intertidal zone, which was the second ecosystem that I fell in love with. 
And then in 2001, I moved inland from the Mendocino Coast to uh, a a 160-acre piece of land outside of Ukiah that was and still is a beautiful oak woodlands. It's where I live now. And I moved into a 20-foot diameter wooden yurt with a two-gallon hot water heater for plumbing. And I was surrounded with about five different species of oaks and wood rat houses and and newts and bay laurel trees and manzanitas. And it was a pretty unmanicured oak woodlands. So um, that was exactly to my liking. And so... Did you slow? Did it slow you down and get you to start to pay more attention? Well, what, what that's a very your... good question because I was already pretty slowed down because I was very sick with something. I didn't know what it was yet. It turned out to be Lyme disease that took ten, ten years to get diagnosed. So I couldn't work, and I was. I couldn't walk a lot, but I could walk enough to get out into this beautiful ecosystem. And I was isolated because I was uh, ill and because I was new to the community. And I found that when I was out of doors, surrounded by the trees and the birds and the animals, I felt much less lonely than I did when I was indoors. And there was a particular bird, the acorn woodpecker, which is kind of the iconic bird of California's oak woodlands. And I knew nothing about it except that when I was out of doors and those birds were flying all around me, they're not very afraid of people, and they have dramatic black, white, and red colors. And every with every wing beat, there's a white patch that flashes in their wings. And they are incredibly communicative. They go, waka, 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 and karika, karika. And these sounds were just filling the air, and they kept me company. And I was not lonely when I was in their presence. And you were able to do some very fine observations of their community life, which you share in in your book. So tell us a bit about their community life. Well, first, what happened was I went to a talk about, I joined our local Audubon Society, and I asked, can we have a talk on acorn woodpeckers? And so Walt Koenig, the world authority who's been studying them for 50 years, uh, came and spoke to our membership. And I found out that they have the most complex social structure of any vertebrate species in the world, including humans. The the most complex of any species that has a spine. And I thought, oh my God, well, I wonder what other plants and animals around here are that unique and have that kind of world-class status? What about wood rats? What about newts? So anyway, I... Uh, I learned that acorn woodpeckers, and, and, and the really neat thing about when you learn something either through research or from going to a talk or from reading a book, when you learn about something that you haven't yet observed, then you start looking for it. So I, I started watching acorn woodpeckers really closely to see signs of these behaviors that I learned about in that talk. So give an example of that. So 
in the talk, I learned that they are the most, they are entirely communal. They, I already knew that they drilled holes in my house and in nearby trees to store acorns. They're the only species, bird species in the world that drills an individual hole to store an individual item of food in vast numbers. Some, these are called, uh, their store unit, storage units are called acorn granaries. And sometimes a granary has 50,000 acorns in it. So what I learned was that these birds that were all around me weren't just random birds. They live in clans of up to 16 birds. And the clans consist of uh, breeding males, breeding females, and non-breeding helpers. And what's really unusual, they're the only species in the world that has a, a, a marriage structure exactly like this. They have communal marriages. There can be up to three breeding females and up to seven breeding males, and any one of the females can mate with any one of the males and vice versa. So they're polygamous. <laughs> yeah, they're polyamorous. That's the right. word these oh, days. All right. Okay. <laughs> and... Um, and then their offspring are called non-breeding helpers, and they stay with their parents for up to five years. They have a biological imperative to breed, but they can't breed un- with their parents. They're the first species to practice incest avoidance. And so in order to become breeding birds, they have to find a breeding vacancy in another clan. And these acorn woodpecker marriages, I call them permanent communal marriages because let's say there are three breeding females. If one of them dies, she will not be replaced. If the second one dies, she will not be replaced. It's only when all the females have died or disappeared that new females will come into this marriage and they have to come from outside unless the members of the opposite sex. So let's say the last breeding female has died but all the males have also died. Also, well, no. Let's say all the males have died, um, and and I, I think that sometimes a female might join her mother or her sister as a breeder if all of the males have died. But in general, you have to go outside the clan to end up so it becomes becoming very, a breeder. <laughs> it's enough for us to keep track of it, much less they, they are keeping track of it. Yeah. How, how about, I, I know there's another bird that that is very interesting, and that's the western scrub jay. And uh, these are highly intelligent birds. And uh, you describe in your book about how they've done experiments with them where they... Um, they will try and f- get a worm out of a bucket. Do, do you yeah, remember? That's how- not the Western scrub jay. Oh, wh- what is that one? That's the New Caledonian crow, oh, which is okay. also a corvid. It's in the same family. Same family. Yeah. So the corvids are very, very, very intelligent. intelligent birds. So and they're, they're the crows, the ravens, the magpies, the, the jays, rooks, the, the jackdaws, yes. nutcrackers, and... The Western scrub jay has a new name now. It's now called the California scrub jay. Okay. And that's because it is specially adapted to um, tugging acorns off of twigs and transporting them. Their bills are shaped for that, unlike the scrub jays that they got split off from on the other side of the Sierra. So 
the California scrub jays have been extensively studied by Nicola Clayton, an experimental psychologist who's now at Cambridge in uh, London. And she has found that these birds are capable of things. She's proven that these that animals in in the in this case these birds are capable of some things that it were previously thought to be the exclusive province of humans such as such as mental time travel episodic like memory and theory of mind theory of mind for instance means that uh, a bird will realize that another bird has different desires and intentions and plans than its own. So is this where they, where you describe how they will they will do a fake burial of an acorn, not a real acorn, if they think that they're being observed, so they'll fake it. Yeah. And, and so, so is that like a, so right? So let's say um, uh, let's say Janet J is. Planting is burying an acorn, which uh, jays, these jays do. They are the, these birds are the primary planters of California's oaks. Almost any oak you see on our hills is planted We're by gonna a jay. We're going to finish Janet's story in just one moment, Kate. I, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Kate Marion Child. She's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California Oaks. And if you'd like to know uh, more about her and her work, you can go to her website, katemarianchild.com. And she spells her last name M-A-R-I-A-N, Marian Child, C-H-I-L-D.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kate Marionchild. She's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. And Kate, we, we were just talking about Janet Jay, and she was burying a, an acorn. Yes, she's burying an acorn. And she is aware that uh, a male named Jerry is uh, within eyeshot of what she's doing, and maybe even within earshot. But she wants to bury this acorn now because she's trying to hoard a whole lot of acorns at once, taking acorn after acorn off the tree. So what she will do is she will mark it with a leaf or a stone and then come back later 
and get it and put it somewhere else so that Jerry won't be able to come oh, so and dig moved. it up. So he thinks that he's going to find an acorn and he doesn't. Yes. yes. So this is a case of um, mental time travel where she remembered what Jerry was doing at a particular time, imagined what he saw or heard, second-guessed what he intended to do, and used mental processes to plan a strategy for the future. You know, Kate, uh, one thing that you said at the very beginning of the program, you talked about how if we go to a talk or read a book and we discover something about a species that maybe lives close to us, and then it, it encourages us to go out and see if we can see that behavior ourselves. And uh, so did, did you do that with the acorn woodpecker? Did you find yeah. anything that yeah. corresponded? Yeah. First, uh, a naturalist named Bob Stewart told me that it was just hilarious to watch acorn woodpeckers at bedtime. And so I set out a chair in front of a nest hole and watched. And I saw what he was talking about, how they just didn't seem to want to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> little spoiled children. <laughs> and then I saw something that I had heard about from Walt Koenig in the talk that he gave to the Audubon group, which was that um, he said that they do something that uh, we call simulated sex before bedtime. So what I observed was that a bird would perch on the edge of a nest cavity, which is also a sleeping cavity, and it would kind of rock forward and look inside and then rock back and look around and do that again and look around. And this might go on for 10 minutes, and finally it might go inside this hole and suddenly there would be well, there'd be squabbling noises and and then very often another bird or the same bird, I couldn't tell, would burst out of the hole and go fly and land on a limb. And what I noticed, then I watched the limb really closely and I saw other birds come and arrive on the limb and they proceeded to engage in simulated sex, which means, I don't know if you've ever seen bird sex, but it takes about three seconds and one hop, the male in real sex, hops on top of the female and flutters his wings to stabilize himself and then hops down. Well, in this case, a bird would hop on top of the other, hop down, and then the, the bird that had been hopped on would return the favor and hop on the other <laughs> one. And it, and it turns out this happens between males and males, males and females, breeders and non-breeders. Everybody in the clan gets in on the act. Huh. And it was so it was so exciting for me to look for it and, and see to it. Actually, see it. But I wouldn't have noticed it. So this just takes me to the idea of um, a sense of wonder of it all. I mean, when you stop long enough to take to to slow it down and actually observe, actually sit down quietly and watch and see what you can see. It's. Can you describe the wonder of that? Oh, the, it, it, it. I love that you said the word wonder. It's now my favorite word, the, both as a verb to wonder and as a noun to be filled with wonder. And I sign my books to wandering and wondering or to wandering. May you wander and wonder. And just the other day, you know, spring has come. And just the other day, I was out. Uh, walking in the hills near my house, and 
uh, suddenly birds were singing, and I saw a bumblebee buzzing a manzanita bush when you know what that's about. <laughs> and I, um, I, I heard a song that I'd never heard before, and I wondered, what bird is singing that song? And I saw a titmouse high on a twig, and but it was facing away from me. I put my binoculars on it, and when you're not sure if a bird you're seeing is the one that's singing a song you want to identify, you look at their throat. And, and, but I couldn't see the throat because it was facing away from me, but I just kept watching really, really closely, and I saw that every time I heard that sound, I saw the tail quiver. Ah. So I, that's, that was a new titmouse sound for me. They're renowned for having a, a huge it, repertoire. It's kind of like mockingbirds. They can really... A they're large not imi- range. they're not imitators. They're not, they, but they have a big repertoire. <laughs> okay, and great. they're also ventriloquists. Isn't that interesting? Now describe that. That was just fascinating to me. Yeah. So titmice are uh, very vocal. In fact, Dave Shuford, ornithologist Dave Shuford, considers them the voice and soul of the oak woodlands, and they. Have a, they play a really important role because they are big scolders. They will, if there's a predator in the neighborhood, you will know about it through the titmouse, titmice. And other birds have come to rely on titmice for letting them know when there's danger. And they relax if there's a titmouse around. <laughs> titmice are always in pairs, actually. They're, okay. uh, they mate for life. And so any bird that opens its mouth that much is putting itself at great risk of being preyed on. So titmice have evolved this behavioral strategy where they'll be sitting on a branch, scolding away, and but they will make the sound get quieter and quieter, and that makes it sound like they have flown away and they're they, that they've moved, it, and it's designed, we think, to fool predators. Oh, isn't that fascinating, just fascinating. So I, I would love for you, you mentioned just very briefly something about um, newts. I call them the lowly newts, but you have another term uh, I call them, term for the, them. the low to the ground but mighty newts. Yes, so we don't think of newts as very interesting, but my goodness, you you're really uh, describing them as quite quite lethal. Yeah, well, yes, and if one were tuned into wondering as one encountered newts walking on roads or across fields, right out in the open, trudging incredibly slowly and being relatively brightly colored. If you were thinking like a naturalist, you would wonder, how can they get away with that? That isn't how I came to this information. I came to this information through research, this information I'm about to share with you. And um, there's a story that's told of of three hunters being found dead in a campsite in Oregon mountains in the 50s. There was no sign of attack, no reason to... to, uh, Think of suicide. The only thing unusual in the campsite was a dead, rough-skinned newt in their coffee pot. 
So a young graduate student who was just finishing graduate school named Edmund Brody Jr. started wondering if that newt could have had anything to do with those men's death. And he started watching newts, and he noticed that when they are threatened, they raise their heads and tails, uh, showing off their bright orange-yellow undersides. And that is a... a um, there's something called aposematism in the natural world, which means showing off bright colors to let predators know that you are toxic. And so he figured he was on the right track. These animals must be toxic. So then he tested some of them, and he found that they had extremely high levels of a potent neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin. It's the same one that's in puffer fish that people die from in after eating it in restaurants every once in a while, and TTX for short. And over the years, this man, the, the, the trails that, stud, that that question took him down are legion, and he is still... 60 years later, still studying newts, along with his son. And there's more to discover. <laughs> oh, huh? there's tons to discover. They don't even know how the newts acquired the TTX. But he, the most toxic newt that has ever been tested so far, if you ground it up and fed it to humans, it would kill 200 humans. And if, oh, you, gra if you injected it, it would kill 2,000. Or at least that's what they estimate. Wow. Wow. So there is just so much to discover still. Um, and in, in doing that, what, what would you say um, we would need to start us off in our discovery? Is there anything that we might, uh, like a book we might need or binoculars or what, what would you most, what's our best tool for starting off? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, if you are not yet even very familiar with what's in your ecosystem, I would suggest two approaches. One is if there's something that you already love and admire but and just enjoy but don't know anything about it, ask yourself some questions about it and then try to answer them either through observation or research. And the other approach would be to set yourself a goal of learning to identify, say, to start out 10 species that are native to your area and learn at least two or three web of life facts about them. So if you go into the first first one, what what kinds of questions would we ask? Well, let's say it's a plant. You might say ask yourself, I wonder who depends on this plant for food. I wonder how this plant is pollinated. I wonder who disperses its seeds. Those would be three really great starter questions. And if you try to get the answers to them, you'd be amazed at what else you learn in the process. So it just starts leading you on a path exactly. of inquiry. Yeah. And let me, let's not forget, I'd like to tell you about one of those questions that I asked and what I found out. Oh, please. Now? Please. Should we do I, that I, now? Please. Okay. Just, just share that. So I was wondering how manzanita gets pollinated. Who, who pollinates it? I was assuming it was pollinated by insects. And this is, this is a bush like. A manzanita is a shrub with very smooth red skin that 
bark that um, can grow up. To, it can it can get to tree size. It can be almost say thirty five feet tall. But it's and we have sixty two manzanita species in California in the world. They originated in Central California, and there are more manzanita species than there are of any other than our species of any other California native plant. So before we go into the full story of of your exploration of Manzanita, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Kate Marion Child. She spells her last name M-A-R-I-A-N-C-H-I-L-D, Marion Child, Kate Marion Child. Her website is katemarionchild.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Kate Marion Child, and she's the author of Secrets of Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. And Kate, you were talking about your inquiry into who pollinates manzanita, and uh, please continue with that story. You know, some plants are pollinated by wind and some by water, but I was assuming they were pollinated by insects, and I... I just wasn't finding it uh, in my internet research until I found an article online by a member of the California Native Plant Society in which she referred to Guru Bob, who had told her about manzanita pollination. I managed to find out that that was somebody named Bob Allen, and I got a phone number, and I called the phone number, and he actually answered the phone, and he said, well, do you know about buzz pollination? And I said, no, I never heard of buzz pollination. He said, well, the way manzanita gets pollinated, it gets pollinated by bumblebees, who, by the way, emerge in the winter when manzanita is blooming. They they time their emergence to the uh, blooming of manzanita. And he told me that manzanita... Because it blooms in the winter, it has some special challenges, one of which is that it's any plant that blooms in the winter, its pollen could be washed away by rain. So manzanita solves that problem by having, uh, by having the petal, the flowers hang upside down, and they're shaped like little urns, tiny little urns, and they're white and a little bit pink sometimes. And the petals are fused to each other and covered with wax. And the pollen is inside in a tube called an anther. Sometimes on many uh, plant species, the pollen is on the outside of the anther where it can get blown by the wind. But in this case, it's totally encased. And it can only get out with the assistance of specialized insects. So the flower corolla acts like a kind of very steep umbrella, shaped, an urn-shaped umbrella, and it sheds water. 
But how can that pollen get out? The opening is too small for any bees except tiny sweat bees to crawl inside. So what happens is a bumblebee comes and it lands upside down on the flower, clinging with its legs and its jaws to the edges of the flower corolla, the rim of the flower, which is down. Then it has to perform an operation that is critical to to this uh, act, which is it has to disconnect its flight muscles from its wings. It does that by relaxing tendons, I believe. So, but it relaxes tendons so that when it vibrates its flight muscles, it won't fly away. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So then it proceeds to vibrate its flight muscles. And it... And as it does so, it starts to make a hum. So it hums and it's vibrating and it's humming. And as that happens, the pollen grains are starting to bounce around inside the tube called the anther. And it goes, it it vibrates faster and faster and faster (laughs) until it gets to, and I didn't bring my pitch pipe, so I don't know where I am, but the musical pitch we know as middle C, middle C, C. (laughs) I'm not sure where it is. And at that point, the pollen grains inside the anther burst out onto the bumblebee's abdomen. Then it reconnects its flight muscles, and it flies away. Kate, have you actually seen I this? I have. Oh, so you But got, that's something that I looked for after I knew about after it. After you talked to Guru Bob. Yeah. <laughs> fabulous, yeah. fabulous. I, 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 it's just amazing <sighs> to me. I, I'd love to talk about, uh, you mentioned in your book, there, there are several keystone species that you talk about. One, one would be squirrels as a, a keystone uh, species. What is a keystone species? What does that mean? A keystone species is a species that has a great impact on its environment that's disproportionate to its own abundance as a species. So you can have a, a keystone species can have a positive impact or a negative impact. But it's and they used to use the definition that if that species disappeared, the ecosystem as we know it would collapse. But that's not the definition anymore. So, uh, what makes squirrels uh, a keystone species? So I imagine you're talking about ground, California ground so squirrels. So we'll, we'll, we'll not talk about those. Not and, gray squirrels. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So they are uh, shapers and uh, architects of grasslands. They uh, they aerate the soil. They dig underground burrows and they aerate soil. They bring seeds up from underground. They move seeds around and and plant them, and then they are food for a tr- for anybody who can manage to eat them like golden eagles and rattlesnakes and coyotes. So they, they're important for all those reasons. Now, now some people would, uh, like, uh, would consider them great pests. And so they're, they're poisoned, they're, they're trapped, they're, they're all bombed. Sort of yeah. bombed, they're just uh, all sorts of things. Are, they're, of course, run over by cars, <laughs> you know, as we've all experienced that. Uh, 
Oh. That's more the the gray squirrels are the ones who are more vulnerable to being run over by I cars. See. They don't I have see. a car sense. I see. So, um, but you you have an appreciation for these these oh, tiny animals. I do. They are. Well, they are the California ground squirrel, which is the largest ground squirrel in California, has been in a long and grueling struggle with rattlesnakes for millions of years. And I have just great admiration for the the strategies, both biological and behavioral, that they have evolved to deal with rattlesnakes. Would you like to oh, hear please. about those? Oh, please. Let's hear, let's hear a strategy. <laughs> well, one really fun one is that they chew on shed rattlesnake skin and then lick themselves all over in order to make themselves smell like rattlesnakes. <laughs> so they go into disguise. <laughs> yeah. And the mothers lick their babies, too. Uh-huh. They've also evolved immunity to rattlesnake venom. The adults are immune to rattlesnake venom. And then they have this amazing ability that no other um, squirrel has evolved. They flag, They do something called tail flagging, where they wave their tails in the presence of a predator to let the predator know that they're vigilant and ready for action. And they're not going to be easy prey. So that, that's true for any, any predators, in the presence of any predators. But when they're in the presence of rattlesnakes, they also flood their tails with blood. That's specific to rattlesnakes because rattlesnakes have sensors in, that are in pits on the sides of their heads. That's why they're called pit vipers. And those sensors can detect heat. And so when the, when the ground squirrel's tail is filled with blood, it is creating more heat. And to the rattlesnake, it seems to be a much bigger animal than it really is because it's waving this heat-filled tail so it looks two or three times the size exactly. that it really is and have you have you noticed that have you seen that i've seen tail flagging yes i haven't seen it in, in um relation relationship to a, to a, rattlesnake. a rattlesnake this just also reminds me of going back to the manzanita maybe for a moment and i know that you describe this piece about a um a wasp, a yellow jacket, maybe it was a yellow jacket, a yellow, jacket. yellow jacket that was was picking off these ants uh, coming out of a hole in a manzanita bush of some sort, and one by one by one. And what was the strategy of the ants that some photographer kind of captured? Oh, uh, not some photographer. My dear friend John Klein. Um, noticed this. I don't know if he actually photographed it, but he saw the um, ants finally, so they're getting picked off one by one, and finally they congregate as a group. And they rear up on their hind legs and they grab at the yellow jacket. And the yellow jacket makes several swoops and they miss it the ants miss and finally they managed to collectively grab it and bring it down that was just amazing to me that they that they figured out this other strategy to just notice number one that they are being picked off one by one i mean it was just a great strategy uh 
Yeah, they were. I bet they were emitting alarm calls, alarm yes. calls that brought the other ants yes. running. And we don't think about ants very much, but they're huge. They're they're very beneficial in so many ways. And I've, I don't remember the statistics, but if if you weighed all the ants in the world of something, if you put them on a scale, it would be way more than any other species. I don't know if that's if I'm quoting that correctly, but it's just. They are worldwide, and they're just fascinating. I seem to remember something like that, too. And they, they uh, distribute seeds, they aerate soil, they eat things, they're, you know, they're scavengers. They are food for a lot of species, such as northern flickers, those beautiful birds. They're, a big beautiful. proportion of their diet right. is ants. Beautiful. And ants, um, speaking of manzanita, they, bur- they, there are about five species of ants that nest in manzanita and only, or they prefer manzanita to any other uh, plant to nest in. And you know how manzanita can have living wood and dead wood paralleling yes, each other? I've noticed that, yes. And that's very unusual in itself. Yes. And why that, that's never been studied, but there's a theory about it. Kate, I would love for you to share a little bit of your writing for our, our listeners, if you would. I would love to. So, um, this, I'm going to start reading. Uh, without telling the audience what the subject matter is here. Over the past several years, against the advice of friends and relatives, I have fallen for someone new. At first, I was barely aware of his existence, much less his steady presence in my life. But whenever I sat down at my outdoor writing table, there he was, eight feet away, always available and always interesting. Eventually, I became aware of his radiant good looks, his enticing fragrance, and his gentle way with birds who fearlessly land on his upstretched arms. I noticed his height, which is greater than my own, and his breadth, which is almost twice his height. I admired the supple grace with which he moves in a breeze and the way light radiates from his many soft surfaces. I began envying the birds who sleep in his arms at night knowing that I will never so much as hold his hand. The object of my affections is a luminously healthy male poison oak bush who has been quietly growing on the edge of my yard for many years. More than any plant I have ever known, I have come to count poison oak as a friend and an important member of my community. I'm here with Kate Marion Child. She's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California Oaks. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Kate Marion Child, and she's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. And Kate, you just read something that I'm sure just surprised most of us when you're describing this male presence in your life. And it turns out to be poison oak, you know. So uh, you, you certainly turned my head around about poison oak. Most of us just are try to avoid it at all costs. And so tell us about poison oak. And, and it might also refer to poison ivy, too, for in other parts of the country. I imagine it does. So it turns out, while I was writing my book, the original motive to write, in writing it was to understand interrelationships among species. So I spent hours, I would, I would read something that said... Um, eaten by birds and rodents, but it wouldn't say what birds and rodents, or eats berries, but it wouldn't say what berries. So that was a big challenge, getting the specific information. And as I was trying to find out who eats poison oak berries, I found more species of birds than I found for any other of the shrubs, the fruit-producing shrubs that I studied. So Poison oak feeds at least 52 species of birds, some of whom rely on it as, long, as much as seven months of the year for food. And then it also is nesting habitat, and there are quite a few mammals that eat the leaves. That's amazing. It's a, that's amazing. So it's very beneficial to the whole it's environment. It's very beneficial. I, I would consider it to be a keystone species because it may be the most widespread plant in California. Uh-huh. And it's very hard to get rid of if you have it. I, I know that I was highly allergic to to uh, poison oak. And I would get it, and I'd say, how am I getting this? Wait, I'm not around it at all. And I found that I was getting it from my cats. Yeah. They would be out in the yard. They'd brush up against it, and then I'd pet my cat, and that's how I was getting it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you cannot get it. The pollen... And the nectar do not have the urushiol in it, which is the, the chemical that causes contact dermatitis. So you can't get it just by standing near it. You actually have to touch it or touch something that has touched although, it. Although you caution that if, if in the wintertime... Yeah, don't burn it. Do you not can, do, pick up a yeah. stick and it might be in poison oak. Yeah, and, I got it that way once by burning it as kindling it for a fire. And how, what was the reaction to that? Oh, it was bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you but breathing thing, it in? Is uh, that, yeah, you breathe it in. Yeah. So don't burn it. Don't but another it. thing positive I want to say about it is that the flowers are tiny and they're they're what are called inconspicuous, but if you look at them with close focusing binoculars, which you you know you're say they they focus within eighteen inches. It's a brand new technology. They turn into just beautiful, glistening marvels of color and shape, and and they're covered with little tiny insects that also come alive. It's like looking with a microscope, except two eyes and you're outside and you're not having to lug something really heavy around. One of the uh, piece of advice you, you give if you want to get rid of it in your close proximity for whatever reason, that you might hire a herd of goats 
a herd of goats, <laughs> a person who's not allergic to there, it. Yeah, my, my my husband, uh, Michael, he was not allergic to poison oak. He could uh-huh. wander in it. He just didn't have that that allergy. But it's pretty pervasive. Yes, yeah. it uh, it spreads through underground rhizomes, yes. and they're incredibly tough. And yes. it can adapt to a wide variety of conditions, and it can grow as a vine, which it does when it's in shade, so it doesn't have to use up energy and sugar creating a trunk. It just borrows right. a trunk. Yeah, it borrows <laughs> a trunk. I'd love to, to, to go into another species that you talk about in your book, and that's the wood rat. And uh, it's just an amazing, uh, and I've had the experience to to meet uh, a wood rat and to know it's a little bit about its abode. So talk about the. And now these are not the Norwegian awful, terrible. No, but these are. This is a native species that's actually more like a big mouse than a rat. Mm-hmm. It has big ears and big eyes. It's a complete vegetarian, very docile. It's something, uh, it's an animal that you would think of as a candidate to be a pet. A pet. It, it's not a pest. And it doesn't make people shriek and faint. It makes you go, ooh, you're so yeah, cute. Yeah, yeah. And they uh, build the most complex above-ground houses of any mammal in the world. They're stick houses. They just keep piling sticks up on top of each other and sometimes bark. They're very uh, versatile builders. They'll use whatever is at hand. And inside these houses, which can be as high as 10 feet tall, usually not more than three. Some, we have some eight-foot houses around um, Ukiah. Inside, they have a central sleeping nest, and that's usually the house is usually built around a, a rock or a stump or a log or a hollow tree. And there's a, a sleeping nest there, and sometimes several. There are corridors, there are leaching rooms where they put food that they want to eat in the future, but it's too toxic to eat now, so they let food age like coffee berry and poison oak and toyone leaves and they have um, pantries and many pantries and each one has a different kind of food in it so the mushrooms will be in one and the manzanita berries in another (laughs) and probably the toyone berries in with the manzanita and the acorns and it's a brilliant survival strategy. I was interested, too, that it would line its nest. It would bite into uh, bay laurel. And, and yes, what, what I'm so describe? glad you remembered that. They, uh, this is a connection that I just love. They uh, are plagued with fleas. Their nests are plagued with fleas and other ectoparasites. And they do not eat bay leaves, these are the leaves of California bay laurel, but they uh, bring them into their sleeping nests and they nibble them to release the volatile oils in order to kill off the flea larvae. And in um, experiments in laboratories, it has been shown that something like 74% of the flea larvae will die when they're exposed to bay laurel leaves. I know. I just, I'm just finding it. Just on and on and on about all of these things in nature that we can discover on our on our own. And I mentioned at the top of the hour we about being a citizen 
scientist. Right. Uh, can you just comment on that and why that, how we might become that and support ourselves to be that and why we might even consider doing that? Well, scientists just don't have the money and the staffing to learn all the things that we need to learn. Yeah, so things like the Christmas Bird Count, it's a, a program that's been going on since 1900. That, that uh, citizen science event, which draws in volunteers from all over the Western Hemisphere every Christmas over a two-week period. You don't have to do it at Christmas, on Christmas Day, which is what a lot of people think. Uh, that provides over, overwhelmingly the majority of the data that is used to monitor the ebbs and flows of bird populations. So how would somebody tap into that whole network? So you would contact um, your local Audubon chapter, and if you don't have one in your own town, try the next town or the town after that, and then ask them when their Christmas bird count is going to be and when the pre-meeting is going to be. And then you go to a pre-meeting and you sign up on a team. And, and you they, do not have to be experienced. And, and I, I noticed, too, that, that like as you're counting, they even have apps for your phone that will say, like if you find a species and you report it, it'll report your longitude and latitude. I mean, it's getting very, very scientific now yes. with the data. In fact, there's a website called eBird that you can join. And that's when you find a bird, you... Um, send in the coordinates with that sighting and sometimes a photograph. And so that's also becoming a very, very important source of data about birds. And then there's a website called iNaturalist that where you can send in a photograph and coordinates and description and you can get feedback back. If you don't, if you don't have the identification, then you can get feedback. Okay, tell me, back. could you... Could you record a, like a song and and on your phone and then say identify this and is there an app for that? I don't know if there's an app for that, but there is a website called Xenocanto X E N O hyphen Canto, on which people post recordings that they have made of bird songs from all over the world. I last summer I had some a house sparrow nesting in my yard, and they have a glorious song, and I wanted to hear how their, my house wren song compared with other house wren songs in other places. And there were 200 house wren songs recorded on Zeno Canto, most of them from South America. Amazing, amazing. And I don't know, uh, there will probably soon be technology where you can get a bird song right, identified. Right, Oh, Kate, oh my goodness. We could go on and on. I know. You, you, do, you, you, in, you fill us with enthusiasm to, to go out into our own local habitat and to start this observation and how exciting that can be and it, maybe joining others in our community. Thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Kate Marion Child. She's the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, Plants and Animals Among California's Oaks. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, which is filled with all sorts of resources. It's katemarionchild.com, and she spells her last name M-A-R-I-A-N-Child, C-H-I-L-D, 
marionchild.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3608. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.